0: Word of God for meditation this morning is Psalm 119. I'm only going to read the first eight verses and touch on those. The other 176 verses I'll leave to your, uh, your perusal later in the day. Blessed are those whose way are, ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast according to your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. This is the word of the Lord. When your pastors come before you, as I'm before you this morning, leading worship, we come as a rule with one of three outfits. You know what the three are? I'll bet you do. Uh, sometimes, uh, if the service is uh, a little bit more informal or because the, the weather, especially in August and early September, dictates, we might come before you unadorned in our what I'll call our ordinary church clothes, right? Usually, we're wearing an alb. That's what this white gown is with this kind of, of, of kind of a fixed collar. This is a throwback, this gown, to what Christian worship leaders have been wearing for more than a thousand years, closer to 2,000 years. It harkens all the way back to the earliest days of the Christian church. Um, some say it reflects the Roman toga. And then once in a while, if uh, the church year sort of allows for it, we might also occasionally wear the old black Geneva gown, which as far as worship attire is kind of new. <laughs> um, uh, Lutheran pastors didn't wear that until they came over to America in the 19th century, and, but it, it has a little bit of time in our, in our uh, worship history. It wasn't what Lutherans wore in Luther's time, but we occasionally still do it, especially on Good Friday or or uh, Ash Wednesday or something like that. As you're thinking about those three outfits that your preachers wear, consider that the means of grace are the three outfits the Gospel may wear as it comes to you. The Gospel may come unadorned, uh, as Scripture itself, as simply the Word of God read or proclaimed or taught in Sunday school. Or the Word of God may come in the washing of baptism, which is the same gospel, the same forgiveness, simply coming in a different outfit. Or it may come to you, as it will come tomorrow night to our worshipers, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where we receive the body and blood of Christ in, with, and under, the bread and the wine, taking it into ourselves. These are the means of grace. And if three outfits doesn't work for you, then consider what I wanted to share with the children today and breathe in for a moment through your nose. Now do it as if your nose is plugged by breathing in through your mouth. Now, sometimes we need a little bit more oxygen, don't we? So you've got to really haul off and yawn. Use your arms, go ahead. It's the same air, right? It's the same air we're getting in, just three different outfits, three different means of getting it in. The means of grace are the same way, whether it's the Word of God or baptism or the Lord's Supper. It's the Gospel coming to us in different ways because our Lord knows sometimes we need to hear it or feel it or have it thrown at us in some different fashion. And He loves us. In our psalm, Psalm 119, our author stresses one of the means of grace, which is the unadorned Word of God, the message of Scripture and the forgiveness of sins that's proclaimed to us in God's Word. It's the comfort of God's grace, God's gracious compassion applied to who? To God's people. Psalm 119 is, is an interesting psalm. You may already know, I'm, I already hinted, it's 176 verses long. We're just looking at the first eight today. You're welcome. And, 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 and in this, the longest psalm, the longest chapter of Scripture, longer than some three-chapter books of the Bible, our psalmist uh, uh, expresses his, his faith in the Word of God. And we don't know who wrote it, but we know some things about the author. Because although the author's name isn't listed, he, we know, based on the text, that he has a deep knowledge of the word of God. He is familiar with and handy with the language of God's holy word. It probably points to a man who was educated on his way to being a priest. But because in the psalm he refers to himself as a young man, He may not yet have become a priest at 30. He might still be a younger man, a Levite, still learning the word of God. He's extremely well-versed in Hebrew poetry. He quotes at least two other psalms. It's Psalm 119. He quotes Psalm 1 and Psalm 19. Does that help you later on? Maybe not. He also touches on many other psalms leading me to think that he was probably writing after the time of David and Solomon when many, more than half of the psalms were written, maybe a little bit later, and because he talks about oppression and about being attacked for his faith in the word of God, in scripture, it leads me to believe that, or to suspect, I should say, that maybe he comes from the time when the kingdom was divided, when there was a northern part Israel and a southern part Judah, and because he never once mentions the temple or tabernacle or the altar or the courts of the Lord or the sacrifices, that perhaps he was a Levite stuck up north when the division came. And that perhaps he's living at the time of, for example, King Jeroboam I up north, who created different kinds of worship because... Our psalmist is constantly saying that there are many temptations to abandon the Word of God for something else. Now, I don't know if, if that's who he was for certain, this psalm writer, a, a Levite stuck up north, but I do know that he was surrounded by many opponents to the Word of God, and he was tempted away from that. This psalm is also written in impressive alphabetic style. Um, 176 divided by eight-verse sections is 22 sections, stanzas. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each eight-verse chunk, verses one to eight, each first letter of each first word is the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet and follows through in order. So that in our section, it's as if the first letter of each word began with the letter A, 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 A. In the next section, verses nine to 16, B, 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 B. That's the pattern of the whole psalm all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. A a grand uh, essay on the Word of God, as one of my teachers said, the Word of God from A to Z, or the great psalm adoring the Word of God. But the psalmist, in our verses, is concerned about the way his life measures up to God's standards. Because he realizes how we don't measure up. He understands how he has sinned in his actions. How he has sinned in his words. How he has sinned with his thoughts. He is In this way, he is just like us. The two halves of this, of this stanza also fold over on each other because in verses 1 to 4, he's talking about how great the path is, the way of God, how holy it is, and in the second half, how can I measure up to that way? How can I measure up to God's standards? He realizes, especially when he's reminded in in, in the text of the psalm that God's word is to be followed, as he says, fully, completely, without any mistakes, that we are to be steadfast. He longs to be steadfast, unwavering in his faith, that God is to be obeyed, perfectly. And how hard this hits at us. It stabs at us. I like to play chess. I like the game. I've liked it my whole life. Ever since my dad thought I was old enough to learn the moves and taught me, I, like to, I don't like checkers. It's just a weird thing about me. I, I'm sorry, Owen, I don't like to play checkers. I know the pieces move diagonally like the bishops do in chess. Um, and, I, and I never really got checkers, I was never any really good at it, but lately I've been thinking, you know, I'm, 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 I'm halfway through my 50s, maybe it's time I learned to play checkers. Probably. I looked up the rules. And then I found out why I don't like to play. It's because a lot of my opponents don't play according to the rules. Did you know in checkers that if you, as you, I don't know if you know checkers. You, yeah, of course you know checkers. I, it, did you know that in checkers, if, if you're able to jump an opponent's piece and take it, that you have to? That you can't wait? And uh, many of my opponents have told me, yeah, I don't like that rule, so I would follow that rule. Well, isn't that exactly the way we treat God's word? I don't like that rule. I don't keep that rule. Did I miss something? Is there a passage in Scripture where God says, keep my laws? Oh, except this one or that one or anyone you don't like, oh, my darling people. No, God never says that. No. We turn away from God's word. We act like we can pick and choose what commands we're going to keep. And what do we do? We end up building up some pile of, of guilt around us with our with our name on a sign kind of stuck in the top of the filth and this pile that grows grows into a great mountain of guilt and shame and 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 then and then the next day we start all over again and the mountain of of, of our shame and our guilt becomes a mountain chain. And then and then we you know we live one more week and and, and this mountain chain turns into a mountain range, and a whole continent filled with nothing but the burden of our guilt and our embarrassment, and, 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 and over there is yours, and over theirs is somebody else's, and our names are stuck at the top on a sign. How, what can we do about this colossal, towering mountain range of guilt and sin on our consciences? No wonder our psalmist cries out, Oh, that my ways were steadfast, obeying your decrees. Well, the psalm writer also says something for us. The solution to our guilt. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes, who seek him with all their hearts. But doesn't that sound like law? Does that sound comforting? Well, keep two things in mind. The psalm writer begins by saying the word blessed twice. When in the Old Testament somebody says something twice, that's the the, the Hebrew language version of underlining it and putting exclamation points around it and using a highlighter to show what this is that we have. And he begins by reminding us what we have. Blessed are you. And if we're blessed, are we partly blessed? No, the other half of this is that we're completely blessed with all of the blessings that God gives and offers we have. Because to be blessed According to Scripture, is to have every one of God's blessings. It, it to beginning with the forgiveness of sins, continuing with the ability to have faith, which God gives to us to apprehend and understand the content of His Word. That unadorned means of grace. It also means. That that, that we have the washing of baptism, the the, the certainty of eternal life, the knowledge of the resurrection, the, the joy, the hope of looking forward to everlasting life with Christ in heaven. It cannot be anything less. If you're blessed, you're blessed all the way. God can't give you part of it without giving you the rest of it. It doesn't work that way. There's a little prayer at the end of verse 8. Do not utterly forsake me. The last words of our psalm, God hasn't forsaken you. It might have looked that way to our author. Lord, I'm surrounded by people who hate your word, who act like like the word of God is just a dead letter, who, 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 who act like they're ashamed of your word. But our author knew the promises of God because he knew the word of God. And since the very beginning of the text of Scripture, God has been giving His people the promise, the promise to Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and beyond the prophets, the psalm writers, including the author of our text. He knew the promises of God, that God loves His people. God rescued His people through Christ. God cherishes his people, you and me, that he has already done everything necessary to free us from our burden of guilt. It's gone. It's nowhere to be found. All because of Christ. He has assured us that we have a place with him forever in heaven. And as we sing his praises, and as he... Uh, 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 proclaims his gospel to us. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like every single love song you've ever heard, and the true singers of that love song are Christ and his beloved church, that the Lord Jesus is singing to his darling and beloved people. And you know how love songs go. They're always idealizing everything. I don't mean country-western love songs. I mean other love songs where where everything is idealized and we're singing like we're going to be together forever, right? Forever and ever, you stay in my heart and I will love you forever and ever. We never will part, oh, I'll love you together, together. You're not going to sing Dionne Warwick with me? It's okay. But that's how we will feel forever and ever in heaven because it's going to go on. It's not going to end. Oh, but while we're here, still here below, we pray, oh, that my ways were steadfast. We we know that we're still kind of slogging through the swamp of our sins. We pray that Jesus would lift us up out of the swamp and put us back onto his path of righteousness. And our psalm writer gives us an amazing little tiny word of encouragement, a preposition, The Holy Spirit guided our author to say, in verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. Oh, the gospel and the word as. While. During the time when. You see, you and I do all of this. We learn... To uh, live for the Lord, living a life of faith, of, of putting our faith into action, we're reminded that's a process, it's a path. Keep working at it every day. Now, not your salvation. That's not a process, that's not a path. That's done. Don't be worried about it at all. Being saved is a done deal. Don't be nervous about heaven. You have a receipt tucked pretty close to the back of your Bible. It's at uh, John 19, 30, with the words, It is finished. That means paid in full. That's the receipt for everlasting life that you own. But meanwhile, while we're kind of standing in line together, waiting for God to call us home again, we remember that the Holy Spirit is working in us every day, to follow our Savior more closely, to examine and watch His footsteps more precisely, to learn to show our love with a little bit more grace, a little more generosity, a little more kindness every day. And the Holy Spirit guides us through this, through the means of grace, with its different outfits, The unadorned word of God, the washing of baptism, the the, the meal of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, the gospel in its three outfits, but always the same, like breathing in air. Once in a while you need some extra. So give it a gospel yawn, and think of that whenever you yawn. That God has given you his gospel in whatever amount you need. It's always enough. And he keeps on doing it for us, day after day after day. And the peace of God that transcends our understanding guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.